today on Ag News Daily. Dad and uncle had started ridge tilling in the early 1980s, and so that's something, a practice that we've continued on till today. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. We're taking the road trip today, literally on the road, doing the podcast maybe potentially on the road, but Mike's driving, I'm holding all the audio equipment. I'm just I'm just interviewing him on the road, right, Mike? That is correct, Delaney. This is the first 70-mile-an-hour podcast I believe we have done. Yeah, I think we have. Not ever done this before. No, we haven't, and if anybody from the law enforcement community is listening, we are not doing a 70-mile-an-hour podcast today. No, but you're not. You're you're uh, Both fans are on the wheel. I'm holding everything. I've got all the hookups set up on my lap. So I think it's relatively safe-ish. It might maybe pass as legal. I don't know. Well, you know, as long as I can uh, maintain this bowl full of ranch dip that I'm dipping my cheese curds into while I text on the <laughs> phone and do the podcast, I think we should be all right. I think we'll do okay. He's kidding. He's not really doing that. But we did eat a lot of dairy on this trip. We ate, uh, let's see, cheese curds, ice cream. We stopped at a cute little dairy place in Wakan, Iowa. We've had a really good trip, don't you think, Mike? We absolutely have, Delaney. And we've got good news while we're talking dairy. USDA announced earlier today that protein exports from the United States, we're talking dairy, we're talking eggs, we're talking beef, we're talking pork and chicken, have all climbed year over year since last year. And the biggest gainer in the export game has actually been dairy. And uh, unfortunately, it's been quite a hot export because it has been so cheap. But like they say, over a long enough time frame, low prices cure low prices. And it looks like that's what they're shooting to do for there in the dairy industry. So good news. And I feel like we did our part. I think we absolutely definitely did. We've had a lot of great growers with producers this week. We're going to get to a great one here later on with Keith Alverson, who sits not only on the South Dakota Corn Growers Association board, but also as a uh, on the national board as well, National Corn Growers Board. And they're just doing some really innovative things on his farm with corn on corn rotations and some of the interesting research they've done. So we're going to get to that here in just a little bit. But we, of course, have to talk about news first. And Mike, you kind of kicked it off there with your uh, your dairy and protein related news. So I'm going to I'm going to jump into some other news. That's really breaking news today or, or kind of the big headline that I've definitely been watching. And that is the USDA assistance package program. Uh, has been rolled out, has been explained the methodology that they've used. So as of today, the USDA released it, and that was put together by Chief Economist Robert Johansson, who is their Chief Economist there at USDA. I'm going to try and break this down as best I can, and I don't know that we have still a lot of answers. Uh, It's about a six-page document. You can find it on the USDA website if you're interested in reading it for yourself. You know, it's fine. I guess it kind of explains what's going on, but basically they took three steps. Step one, they found the trade value without the retaliatory tariff from a particular country. So i.e. Canada, Mexico, the EU, whatever. They tried to figure out what what we usually export to that country for a fiscal year. Step two was they looked at the trade value. So I'm sorry, step one was they looked at the trade value without the retaliatory tariff, what we sent last year without any tariffs in place. Step two was they looked at the trade value with the retaliatory tariff in place from a particular country. And then step three, they took those two differences of quote-unquote the trade damage due to the tariff. So for example, they've got two examples here I'm going to run through really quick um, as part of this 
package that they put together that you can find again on the USDA's website. Just uh, Google trade. Let's see. I think it's called trade damage estimation. If you Google that, I'm sure you can find it for yourself. Um, but for the first example, in step one, in 2017, China impo imported 956 million dollars of sorghum from the United States. With additional 25% tariff, China is estimated to import only $642 million from the United States. That creates an estimated gross damage of negative $314 million, or a loss of $314 million. And they calculated that we have about 364 million bushels in, uh, in production this year, which would give us $0.86 cents per bushel on 50% of the production. Then the second example here was for how they calculated the corn number. I think that was the other one a lot of folks had questions about. In 2017, China and the EU combined imported about $309 million worth of corn with the additional 25% tariff on both countries. Uh, that combined import for, from the United States is an estimated $117 million, so that's damage or a loss of $192 million. That's an estimated... $117 million in, or I'm sorry, $192 million in lost damage, and they're estimating 14.6 billion bushels at one cent per bushel is what they're allocating back, so 50% of that again on harvest production. I think that answers some question, but it leaves a lot, I think, to, what's the word I'm looking for, maybe uh question or it's a lot to be desired Delaney in my opinion and here's here's my thought I understand what USDA is doing you can only do so much when you're calculating these numbers I mean there's only so much magic that, that an economist can run but what bothers me is when we put these tariffs in place and when China retaliated we have follow-on effects we don't just lose the sale of grain and that's all the farmers lost we've seen grain piling up in North Dakota that's killed the basis up there they've lost their market in the Pacific Northwest and you know now they're looking at at a dollar fifty dollar sixty under in soybean basis and boy that certainly isn't accounted for in this measurement and perhaps it's because it just can't be I mean maybe there's too many intangibles and you know maybe on the corn side it, it hasn't been that much as regards to basis and and growers pocketbooks but I don't know at least they rolled this out we've got a clear picture of what they were trying to do even if it doesn't make everybody happy Absolutely. And I mean, the USDA economist Robert Johansson did say in a quote that gross trade damage only reflects direct, direct export losses due to the retaliatory tariff imposed on the U.S. commodity. Indirect or secondary effects from the tariff, such as cross-commodity effects, are not reflected in this gross trade damage estimate. So I think he understands that to some extent. I think he understands that Producers aren't going to be happy, but it does sound like we might get um, a second round of, of payments, doesn't it, Mike? It does. And Delaney, that was the big news I was watching today. Actually, right alongside with the research paper you talked about, USDA unveiled another white paper that said round two of trade aid packages from USDA might be coming out in December. Now, we don't quite know what that's going to look like. In theory, it's another $12 billion potentially broken down a little bit differently than the first uh, you know tranche was but basically what they're saying is we're going to try to consider the additional tariffs that have been levied since we really kicked this thing off back in uh, March or so and then since the first tranche of payments to this current one you know what all additional 
has been hurt, and they'll uh, allegedly incorporate that into the numbers. So, folks, keep watching your mailboxes. Keep listening to Ag News Daily. We'll keep you updated. And as soon as we hear what this next rollout will look like, we'll be sure to keep them updated. Right, Delaney? Absolutely. And we have talked to a couple of producers who have done the sign-up program. They said it's relatively easy. It doesn't take a lot of time. And I think on Monday of next week, Mike, the uh, Iowa pork producers are putting together a quick little seminar um, to just kind of go through that, what the process is like, what if producers have any questions, that kind of thing. And I think you're going to be present on that, so you can hopefully shed some more insight into that. Well, that's the goal. That's the goal, shed some insight, and uh, I guess we'll see how it turns out. We did have a little bit of other news as it relates to the farmer assistance package. So one of the other big chunks of that $12 billion being allocated is also going to uh, basically the government pulling supplies out of production to use in programs like SNAP or other food nutrition assistance programs. And the USDA is anticipating to uh, purchase a majority of that money or a majority of that funding is going to be purchasing pork. That's at the top of their list. They're intending to purchase nearly $559 million worth of that commodity in particular. And that's on top of the $290 million in direct payments that hog farmers will be receiving, which is, I think, set at $8 per head. Um, and then the USDA is also set to purchase about $93.4 million worth of apples, $85.2 million worth in pistachios, $84.9 million in dairy product, and then $55.6 million worth of fresh oranges along with some other commodities um, that are consumed but not to the extent of those top commodities. Yeah, you know, and Delaney, I, we haven't had any on this road trip, but to me, the greatest road trip food combination, I feel like it's somewhat healthy and it's filling. You go with a sack of pistachios, shell on, salt brine, and then you go with a sack of beef jerky, and then depending on the time of day, either a bottle of water, a big old mug of coffee, or perhaps, you know, Mountain Dew or a Red Bull if you need to stay awake. That, ladies and gentlemen, I drive 90,000 miles a year, and uh, that combination keeps me awake for most of it. And, you know, it, it helps with all sorts of uh, with other things as well while you're traveling. Yeah, I'm not on board with most of that snack. I'm not a big pistachios fan myself. Really? No, I don't know what... I like other forms of nuts or legumes, but... I'm not a big pistachio fan. And I guess I've never had, like, a raw pistachio. I love the fact that they soak them in salt, so then you, you suck all the salt off first. And I'm, I'm pro-salt in almost any, any environment. Yeah, I mean, so am I. But what do you do with the shells? Now, that's another question. And Delaney, well, this might be an Ask Agnes question. For you listeners who haven't uh, heard Ask Agnes, tune in to last Friday's podcast. And uh, basically, it depends on what you're up to. Um, if I'm on the boat, I feel like it's okay to flip the shells off into the water. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yep. If you're in a vehicle, and if it's my vehicle, then I put the shells in like a Gatorade bottle or a, an empty water bottle, someplace convenient. The real question is, what do you do when you're in a lovely Japanese Nissan Sentra or Sonata or whatever this crap box car is we've been driving around on the road trip the last couple of days. So if we'd had pistachios in this car, I would really not feel terrible shelling them and throwing the shells on the floor. I feel like it might actually give us some more sound insulation, kind of deaden the noise here in the in the cab of the car a little bit, but uh, yeah, yeah, not, not in love with this vehicle. 
I wonder if they charge us um, a cleaning fee. The rental car place charges a, a rental car cleaning fee if we uh, did that. Yeah, no, I, I'm pretty sure they would if there were, you know, 12 pounds of pistachio shells ground into the floor. Huh, yeah. Okay, well, uh, Mike, what other news did you have for us today? So, really, just one other piece of news for our listeners today. And most of us, I know a lot of our listeners are Midwestern, we're Corn Belt, we have a lot of folks out in California and in Texas. We're all pretty much spared from what is happening today as we speak down in North Carolina. Hurricane Florence, the strongest hurricane of the year to make landfall, is bashing North Carolina. 40 inches of rain in some place. Folks, North Carolina is a huge poultry producer, huge pork producer, a lot of cotton, a lot of uh, corn and soybeans and tobacco. You know, all those folks, there are brothers and sisters in agriculture. You know, remember to spare a thought and let's make sure that as this storm moves through, we're listening and we're paying attention for those folks that are going to need help, maybe help uh, rebuilding, you know, restocking herds, whatever it might be. You know, let's just always remember that while we don't deal with hurricanes here in Iowa, we could be struck by a tornado. And in those times, we're always relying on our on our friends both nearby and around the world. And also, folks, remember, if you're in that area, Secretary Sonny Perdue came out earlier today and said that USDA stands ready to assist, whether you're a family, a farmer, rancher, or a small business, check in the office. at Your local FSA office would be my first stop after the storm has cleared and the evacuations have been lifted and uh, they are standing by ready to help it sounds like uh, ready to move fairly quick but that's good news at least with uh, in the wake of kind of that crisis for the east coast like the only other piece of news i have before we hop into today's markets is a little bit more about meatless meat and regulating uh, kind of the bioengineered meat products the usda issued or uh, issued a statement saying that they're planning to give the final rule for labeling bioengineered foods by early December of this year, according to Greg Ibeck, who's the Undersecretary for Marketing and Regulatory Programs at the USDA. The rule was sent to the White House Budget Office on August 31st for review, and it looks like hopefully they're going to move quickly on that. We still don't know uh, what they're going to decide, but he did say, or he made a, told members of the National Farmers Union that the department plans to align the new disclosure requirements with the changes in nutrition labeling that the FDA mandated earlier this year. Interesting. It sounds like by rolling out this rule, Delaney, USDA is saying this is our territory and we'll match you, FDA, but we're not going to let you run this thing. Is that how you read that? Hmm. I'm... Yeah, I mean, I guess potentially, but I think it's still a little up in the air which entity is actually going to govern bioengineered foods because typically USDA is hoof and mouth kind of a yeah, not ruling. the disease not the no, disease. no 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 not the disease but when it's things alive with hooves and mouths is what yes you're things with hooves and mouths are ruled by USDA and then once they get to kind of the processing or um, byproduct stage then the FDA rules them so I don't know who's going to take over at this point but it sounds like maybe we should find out by early December all right, well, stay tuned just in time for Christmas. And Delaney, since I am driving, I was wondering if I could impose upon you today to rec- to read the markets for us. Yeah, that's probably a little safer, so I'll go ahead and do that for us today, folks. 
having a interesting day in the markets again very volatile times right now and uh, we got to have a lot of great discussions this week with Matt Zayner and Ted Seifert from the Zayner group we highly encourage you if you have questions about marketing about how to protect yourself during these volatile times to give them a call they're more than happy to talk to you help explain options strategies to you and explain them in a way that makes sense for your operation. So go ahead and give them a call today at 312-277-0050. Mike, we're seeing red pretty much all across the board today. In the September corn contract, down five and a quarter cents at 3.36 and a quarter, while the December contract lost two cents to close at 3.50 and a half. The soybean pits gave up most of yesterday's rally down six and a quarter cent at eight twenty two and three quarters in the September contract, while the November contract cut six and three quarters cents at eight thirty three and a quarter. In the Chicago wheat pits, September contract gave up ten cents today to close at four seventy one and three quarters, while the December contract in the red nine and three quarters cents at four ninety seven even. Hopping over into the livestock market, continuing that down day there in the live cattle markets, the October contract lost 67 and a half cents to close at 110.80, while the December contract cut 12 and a half cents to close at 115.40. Over in the feeder cattle pits, the September contract here saw some strength up 32 and a half cents at 154.95 and a half, while the October contract in the green 37 and a half cents to close at 155.40. In the lean hog markets, the front month contract down 12 and a half cents today at 55.67 and a half, while the deferred up 30 cents at 55.92 and a half. And running out today in the dairy market, Mike, you'd think our consumption of dairy all week would have helped the dairy markets. You know, Delaney, I would certainly think so. I feel like I've eaten, uh, you know, more than a cow's weight in dairy products over this past week between cheese curds and ice cream and whole milk, which is the only real milk, of course, as we've discussed. I I, I have to do, I have to decline that uh, decline that agreement there. But looking at the Class Three milk closes for today, the September contract went unchanged to close at 16.13, while the October contract lost 17 cents to end at 16.11. Mike, let's turn it over now to Keith Alverson, just outside of Sioux Falls, South Dakota, in Madison, South Dakota, to talk about his operation. All right, we're taking another trip here. We're talking to Keith Alverson, who is a farmer uh, just, just outside of Sioux Falls in Chester, South Dakota. Keith, tell us a little bit about your farming operation. Uh, so I'm the sixth generation of my family on the farm, um, which, you know, been in the we farmed in the South Dakota and Chester area since before South Dakota was South Dakota. I like to tell people my uh, sixth great grandfather built a sod hut on a, one of the creeks you guys probably crossed on the way over here. Um, got uh, my farmed with my dad and uncle uh, from the time I was out of college until a couple years ago. Uh, the two of them retired, but still get uh, seasonal help from from those folks, and you know it's it's always uh, appreciated, but. Uh, about 2,500 acres, uh, mix of corn and soybeans, uh, predominantly corn, about uh, 60 to 70 percent corn on an annual basis with the remainder in soybeans. And uh, then about a third of the farm is irrigated um, on uh, kind of a unique soil type to, to South Dakota. But, uh, you know, there's just kind of a spot, uh, real small spot in the county that requires irrigation and has water to irrigate. And that happened to be where that sod hut was you know, built. So we kind of, until irrigation came in, it was a uh, pretty, pretty rough country. Um, 
been in, uh, my dad and uncle had started ridge tilling in the early 1980s, and so that's something, a practice that we've continued on till today, uh, and really like it from the residue management aspect and think it gives us the ability to, to grow corn on corn, uh, pretty efficiently and with, uh, you know, minimal impact from, from the tillage perspective. So, Keith, of course, we're up here in South Dakota. We're driving around the countryside. Corn's getting awful brown. It's getting awful close to ready. It's 90 degrees and breezy today. When do you think you're going to be out there running? You know, uh, I'm thinking probably a week and a half to two weeks is what we're looking at. We, uh, you know, heard of some neighbors that, you know, they chopped silage last week. Uh, I've got a brother-in-law that uh, they had to move from one of their silage corns over to one of their later planted corns because it was too dry. And uh, just amazed at how things were drying down, and so things are coming on fast. Uh, typically, we're looking at starting corn harvest that first to second week of October, and so we're probably going to be a good two to three weeks early. Um, heard of some guys that started soybeans yesterday with some 09s, which is on the early end of the spectrum. You know, we've got uh, a handful of, of farmers in the neighborhood that'll plant uh, things soybeans that early to or that short of a, a maturity in order to get going on things. Um, most R's are in the 1.8 to, to 2.1 maturity range, and so I'd still anticipate we're, we're probably a, a week to 10 days out on those uh, under the best case scenario. And so, but uh, things are looking good. Um, you know, guys are always excited about having crops dry down in the field. You know, there's seasons that we're, uh, we're you know, counting the growing degree days right up until that first frost just to get the crop mature uh you know and so having having a year like this is certainly appreciated you know given the the economics guy doesn't want to have to 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 burn any more propane or natural gas than than we need to into crop and besides doing uh grow crops you're also working a lot on the science side of things explain to us a little bit about some of the carbon research and carbon farming that you guys are doing here on your operation so it started a few years ago. We'd, um, as we'd intensified our soil sampling for fertility purposes and to do uh, more intense management with variable rate technology and others, uh, we'd noticed that our organic matter levels had seen a significant increase from those that we'd taken early on. Uh, you know, as as my dad and uncle had had went from uh, conventional to ridge tail farming. And, you know, that was the baseline that we'd had. We, we looked at uh, some, some neighboring examples as well as, uh, you know, talking with our local land-grant college who's uh, run a soil testing lab for several years and found that uh, it, was, it was a nice trend line across eastern South Dakota where we'd seen an increase in organic matter levels. Caused us to kind of take a look a little bit deeper at, uh, you, know, um, you know, what exactly is taking place on our farm. So we, uh, we hired a, a group called Applied Ecological Systems. We had them come in and look real specifically at soil types on our farm under the management practices that we, of course, known the management history on uh, versus uh, some neighboring fields who'd had been under different management practices as well as, uh, you know, what we try to get back to native pasture and so, uh, or native prairie. Uh, so looking at pastures or fence lines, things along that line. Uh, and what we found was, uh, was pretty, pretty neat. The fields that we've had, uh, over long term in ridge till, uh, growing significant amount of corn and then, uh, you know, leaving that residue in place. Uh, we've seen organic matter levels build back up to, to nearly the level of the native pasture, native prairie. 
and uh, some of the ones that we've seen shorter term in Ridgetail that uh, that I'd taken on as I came back to the farm in the early 2000s, um, you know, have rapidly jumped, but uh, you know, still slightly short of, of the pasture. And so, you know, think that we've got the potential over the long term to continue to build that. And so, uh, working on, you know, basically the way we've looked at it is, you know, as a carbon, you know, like balancing a checkbook. We're putting more carbon back into the soil than we're taking off or losing through, uh, you know, either removal or tillage practices. And so, high residue crops like corn, uh, you know, I know through some parts of the state, uh, wheat. Uh, you know, which uh, really stable carbon source, but then also following that up with a cover crop to use the full growing season we have has been something that uh, has been pretty popular. Yeah, and when folks hear carbon sequestration or, or carbon farming, you know, I think a lot of people understand we're pulling carbon out of the atmosphere that's, you know, good for greenhouse gases. It's got a lot of environmental benefits. But at the end of the day, Keith, we're in a fairly challenging ag environment why do we care about carbon sequestration? Is there a premium? Is there a way that farmers can capitalize on this? What prompted you to start looking at it and made you care? You know, um, one of the initial things was uh, looking with, been involved with the ethanol industry for years. My dad has been involved in that. And, you know, knowing uh, some of the pressures being put on the ethanol industry through low carbon fuel standards, uh, like the one in California, you know, which has been a significant market for corn ethanol. Uh, and just a way to continue to play in that. And so in the carbon accounting, they had charged emissions for the corn production end of things, um, you know, in, in their whole life cycle analysis. And so once we took a look at that, we thought, you know, if we're building organic matter and sequestering carbon, instead of having that be a negative in the accounting, that could be a positive. And so what kind of information do we have to put together in order to prove that? And then ultimately, you know, there is a, a premium being paid for lower carbon fuels in California. And so how do we attribute that back or is there a way to track that back to the farmers? Do you know how much of a premium there is for that type of fuel source in California? Uh, so it, it varies. Um, a lot of it tracks back to just the, the pricing of carbon on a per ton basis. Um, and so it's a market-driven system, and we've seen, you know, tons of carbon go from $100 to $200 a ton. And actually, the the legislature in California was concerned enough with the demand that was created by this that they actually capped the price of carbon in California because they were worried that the demand ultimately could be so high that the the price of carbon could skyrocket there. Uh, and they were worried about just the budgetary end of things. Um, and so they they've got that but then within the low carbon fuel standard it, it progressively uh you know ratchets down the or ratchets up the requirement for a lower carbon fuel and so each year it, it gets a little bit more difficult for california to meet that low carbon fuel standard and so there should be an incentive each year for if you have a lower carbon fuel what about carbon in the soils because i know you said you do a little bit of, of testing does carbon is carbon just good for organic matter increase walk me through a little bit about that sure you know the you know looking at it from the carbon uh, side for ethanol versus just you know what kind of benefit do I see on my farm and you know what we've seen is is a percent and a half to two percent of organic matter gain uh, over you know the last 30 to 40 years uh, 
if you start looking at the science behind that, the increased water holding capacity, you get about 1.43 acre inches for every percent of organic matter that you can put into the soil. Uh, you talk to the, the seed technology providers and they'll tell you that, you know, 10 to 15 bushels an acre per acre inch of water. And so we start talking real dollars as far as just, you know, stability and, you know, sustainability within the soil. And so, you know, it's, it's really a resiliency thing, uh, you know, gets us through that couple weeks in July that we're, we're hoping for a rain. If we've got a little bit more water holding capacity, that's a benefit. Um, you know, and we get some mineralization of some of our organic matter each year that releases some nutrients to the crop throughout the growing season. So rather than a single application, we've got that organic matter breaking down and providing nutrients to the crop. And so we've seen a, a reduction in requirements for nitrogen application as well because, um, you know, with that mineralization, it provides nitrogen uh, for the crop, for the corn crop. You know, and, and that's interesting. Just doing back of the envelope math here, if you add 1% of organic matter and you get that 15 bushel increase, even at $3 cash, that's 45 bucks in your pocket per acre. I, that pencils. You can see growers making that investment. Now, for folks who are just now starting to think of this sort of thing, cover crops are a hot topic. This has been a, an ongoing soil conservation, water conservation, nutrient conversation conversation. What are you guys doing? You mentioned ridge till. What other ways are you guys trying to manage your residue and encourage that breakdown a little bit better so you can build that organic matter? So really we've, we've looked at it from both the reduction in tillage and, a, and just trying to grow high carbon crops. Uh, we have, you know, a high frequency of corn. Uh, the carbon to nitrogen ratio is, is really high in, in corn versus, you know, even like a soybeans where there's a significant amount of nitrogen in the residue. It tends to break down a little bit. And so, if you can increase the frequency that you grow higher carbon crops, the stability of the carbon that's there, you know, allows for incorporation within the soil through microorganisms and earthworms and things along that line. Um, and so those are the, the first two things that we've, we've worked at. Um, we have attempted cover crops, haven't been real successful in our, you know, two to three attempts at, at getting cover crops established. And, you know, some of that is as far north as we are in the, you know, we're, we're out of the traditional corn belt yeah. here. Um, you know, it's just a lot of years, this spring, we had a snowstorm <laughs> on April 25th, <laughs> and we were planting, you know, the first week of May. And then, you know, this is an early fall, uh, but there's some falls uh, that, you know, we're fighting to, to have the crop mature before the ground, you know, or before we start freezing and the ground starts going down in temperature. And so... Um, you know, and, and then just not having a lot of moisture in our climate. Late summer typically seems to be a dry time of year. Um, we've, some of the years that we've tried cover crops, uh, you know, I think we run into not having any moisture yeah. uh, on the surface of the soil just to do establishment. And so by the time we'd get a fall rain, things are cooling off. Um, the gas tank's empty you by bet. the time you get Yeah, and so, I mean, uh, folks have been able to make it work when they have wheat in the system. Got a little bit more time. Uh, you know, you can use... Uh, different application methods, you know, you can get out there with a no-till drill or something rather than having to have it flown on or hyboid on. Um, but, you know, we're uh, certainly intrigued by it um, and, you know, looking forward to continuing to try and make it work, uh, you know, and so, you know. And I think it's just fascinating that 
even though, okay, cover crops are a hot topic, they haven't worked for you guys. They're not going to work for everybody, yet you found a way to still grow organic matter. You're still growing corn on corn, which has kind of been vilified, especially by folks not connected with ag. You know, the you know, corn is taken up the prairie ground. Uh, no, look, we're building, or we're pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. I think that's interesting for growers to hear. Keith, as you look out over the next five or ten years, what practices are you excited about trying? What are you going to intensify? What's, uh, what's the next experiment going on up here at Alverson Farms? <laughs> uh, you know, well, one of the things that we've, uh, you know, I mentioned that we have irrigation. Mm -hmm. One of the, the newer things that we tried is we installed some drip irrigation uh, this past year. Um, you know, and we think that that, um, you know, we're hoping that that's a technology that can can be, you know, kind of the next yield boundary for us. And so using that as, uh, you know, kind of full season application tool for nutrients and so we can really narrow in on timing on uh, and, and you know spoon feed is a term that you know it gets used a lot um you know i i've thought of where we put our drip tape is is like an iv system into our roots you know and so you look at some of the 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 nursery systems and you know horticulture systems that they do raised beds They've got drip tape, and they're real timing specific on nutrient application in order to try and continue to be uh, ultra efficient about how they use their nutrients and and when they use it in order to increase yield. And so uh, that's one of the things that we're trying. Uh, you know, I think the the technology and data uh, analytics is something that I'm very interested in. I haven't necessarily drawn a bit. Uh, you know exactly how back to to be able to attribute that back to how do we increase carbon but uh you know i had uh one of the the folks that i get to work with at national corn growers and i'd sent him a picture a couple or a video a couple of weeks ago about uh an earthworm or nightcrawler that actually pulled our corn stalks down into a, a midden oh uh, and this has been a couple of weeks ago where the this this the leaf had fallen down on the ground and he's already pulling it down or incorporated into the soil and he said wouldn't that be cool if we could gps track where that carbon was ended up how deep it's going where it's going yeah. i mean it's like you know you start uh you know trying right. to open your mind to what the possibilities of technology and, yeah. and analytics are and, and you know uh, the sky's the limit. And if you measure it, you can change it. You know, that's kind of the first step, I think, in doing scientific approach rather than the, you know, halfway approach that Pearson Farms adopts. <laughs> this is really inspiring to see, Delaney. It is. I agree. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. This is really neat to see, and we wish you a, a safe and hopefully bountiful harvest here when you get the combines rolling. Thank you. Well, Keith, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. And Delaney, you know, I tell you what, corn on corn got a really bad rap during the commodities boom. We saw environmental groups protesting, oh, we're pulling ground out of uh, pasture and so forth. We're going to lose organic matter. And, you know, what Keith and his farm is showing us is that, no, by doing corn on corn with that high carbon composition, hey, we're able to build organic matter in the soil and capture more greenhouse gases. It's a long-term win for the environment. It's a, it's a win for his operation. He's more profitable growing corn. We need to get that out into the public so they take note of it, I think. Yeah, and I think the thing that was very clear to me is, you know, we asked him, you know, have you used cover crops before? Because especially in Iowa, that's a big push to be, quote-unquote, sustainable is to implement cover crop usage, no-till uh, practices, etc. But for him and a lot of other producers we talked to, things like that just don't work. Their growing season is too short. Um, you know, they're farming on hills in some insta instances, and, and some of those practices don't work. 
But I think the thing that was very abundantly clear to me is that regardless of what practices they use, they are trying to find sustainable practices that work for them in their neck of the woods. And I think that that really highlights, you know, the strength that we have in agriculture and the, the willingness to be stewards of the land. Absolutely. And Iowa listeners, uh, Minnesota listeners, tune in. We're going to have a little chat with Lauren Steinlinch tomorrow about an extension grass program happening in, I believe it's Fayette. But tune in tomorrow. We'll get Lauren's thoughts and uh, get that out to you. A way to say it, become more sustainable, grow that type of, uh, of operation on your farm. And Delaney, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.